0: This is the Seminole Wars Authority. Hello and welcome. There's fresh blood in the Seminole Wars living history interpretation community. Two reenactors, Stephen and Paulette Dennis, entered the hobby in November at Florida Heritage Day at the Dade Battlefield Historic State Park in Bushnell, Florida. When we say fresh blood, we are being somewhat facetious. Stephen retired from the U.S. Navy after a quarter century, and Paulette kept the home fires burning at the Dennis household. What they don't have in youth, they make up for with experience, knowledge, and a Florida heritage. Stephen is dressed as an Army Private of the 1830s, while his wife Paulette is attired as a pioneer matriarch. The Dennises display the rations that soldiers would have eaten on the march. They assiduously followed the recipe compiled by our own Jerry Morris who penned a short booklet some years back, an army moves on its stomach for the Seminole Wars Foundation, Stephen and Paulette have tailored their interpretation based on their own ancestors who fought in the Seminole Wars. Stephen joins us today to share what he knows about all this. Stephen Dennis, welcome to the Seminole Wars Authority. Thank you, it's great to be here. Stephen, you and your wife Paulette recently presented at Florida Heritage Day at the Dade Battlefield Historic State Park. What did you present, and why did you present?
1: Uh, Well, Paulette and I presented what a soldier might carry in a knapsack and what a soldier ate on the march. We were interested in presenting something, and Paulette is a bit of a foodie. We wanted to put together what a soldier would carry in a knapsack, and this led to food in a haversack and what the soldier would eat in garrison and on the march. And what we displayed on the blanket was the small amount of food and different types that a soldier would eat as part of his ration for a day out in the
0: field. Presenting historical characters is new to you and your
1: wife. Uh, we enjoy going to events like they have at day Battlefield. We've progressed in our interest in this period of Florida history. We actually started to prepare to do something like this before the COVID things. Our interest in Florida history and some of our, you know, our ancestral history, we felt like we might be able to participate. This was the time to do it.
0: Both of you presented personas, what did you choose to wear and show?
1: I had presented as a soldier during the Second Seminole War, Company B of the 3rd Artillery Regiment, which was assigned to Fort Brook uh, in uh, Tampa, what became Tampa at the time. And Paulette was presenting as one of her ancestors who would have been in Florida at the time. Paulette really is a hero in all this. She made my uniform by hand and her outfit by hand. And also the haversack and collected the foodstuffs and that sort of thing. She also looked at Gary Morris's pamphlet on what a soldier ate, and we used that as our path. And so, using a compilation of recipes, making things like hardtack, hard bread, which is pretty hard to break, and you could probably use it on your kitchen
0: floor. What did you read to prepare, and what in your background prepared you to make this transition?
1: My background is I taught this period of history for a, a number of years. I did read a bunch of books, including many that are offered by the Seminole War Foundation. My go-to books
0: are John
1: Sprague's book on the Florida War and John Mahon's book on the Second Seminole War. He was a University of Florida professor that studied this era in great detail. There are other books, Jonette, Mary Lou, and John Mitchell Covington, other firsthand accounts by figures of the time like General Jessup, Governor Call, many battle reports. Where there was something to read, I would try to find it on the Internet,
0: and that helped augment my knowledge of it. How helpful or not are the printed materials available?
1: Well, with anything, you have to glance sometimes at what you read. But people tell the story as they see it at the time. So Sprague's book is key. It's probably the biggest personal account I'm aware of. There are other smaller books, Bemrose and Mott both wrote books dealing with their experiences in the war. Preble, a Navy guy, about his experience in the war. So those are the firsthand accounts. So you read all of these things, as many as you can, and you see where they overlap and where they conflict and you have to use your historical judgment on which may be more credible in a certain event or not. And then there are the secondary histories, the John Mahans, the, the George Buchers, uh, Covington, a, a lot of these others who... Help with interpreting it, so they're very, very helpful. They help establish our knowledge, but thing is, 100% right, we'll never know what 100% right
0: is anyway, because that is really filtered by the lens through which we see our reality. So, Stephen, how helpful was Jerry Morris's booklet, "An Army Moves on Its Stomach," published by the Seven Awards Foundation?
1: That was central to what we did. He lays out in great, very readable fashion what uh, soldiers encountered with their diet during that period of time, from being in garrison to being on the march from Fort Brook to Fort King and now Okawa. Without his pamphlet, we would not have been able to do our presentation. We built the presentation from his pamphlet.
0: How did you first encounter Jerry Morris and his mess kit for what a soldier would eat on the march in the 1830s? The story on that is,
1: Back in about 2013, I went to my first Dade reenactment as a, I'd been a spectator the whole time, and my intention is to participate in the battle as a reenactor, the next one. So it was about 10 years ago, and I was at Dade Battlefield, and Jerry had his tent out there with his little little school house set up there, benches and things, and he's been there for many years doing that. Saw some of his presentation there, and also the Dade Battle, I was Active duty military teaching officers about operational and strategic level war planning. Staff ride up there at Dade Battlefield would be part of that, and we can go into that more later. Met him there, being as I was reading everything I could get my hands on because I was developing or had developed a staff ride for the battle for this course I was teaching. I read his pamphlet back then, even because I think it was uh, fairly new at that time. Fast forward about 10 years. Last year, we ran into Jerry at the Pioneer Museum in Dade City. Talked with him a little bit and saw, you know, what he had set up there still. Talked with him a little bit. I had mentioned to my wife, Paulette, that he had written a pamphlet on what soldiers ate on the march. And he also had another book, The Road Between uh, Fort Brook and Fort King, um, which was in the Dade. I think it's still there, you know, copies for sale in the the museum there. My wife is a bit of a foodie. Uh, She's the kind of person that can look at a recipe and decide if it's going to taste good or not. And she can taste something and determine what's in it and she was curious about what a soldier would eat on the march. So in the pamphlet which we read together online, they laid out quantity of beans and coffee and what sugar or salt, vinegar, how much salt pork they might have, a recipe for hardtack, all that. So those all kind of combined to (laughs) set the conditions for us having a little bit of a display that really was the motive force behind. I don't know that I'd have done it because she does my cooking. I don't ever have to worry about a meal, but uh, it was interesting to see what a soldier in Florida would eat at the time and really It's not very much, and you can see why you might have health problems if that's all you could subsist on during the times. All of those things combined to have us develop a blanket display of what a soldier might eat. She baked hardtack, the hard bread that served as a bit of an icebreaker when people would come up to the display.
0: Icebreaker or toothbreaker?
1: I'd offer them a piece of hardtack and show them how hard it was to break. But they'd nibble on a piece and they'd say, Ah, you know, this actually isn't that bad. That was kind of fun. But that's a long story on how we got to where we were at the event.
0: Stephen, what's your experience with Army rations that are used to feed the troops in the field today, as opposed to the rations that you and Paulette recreated for the 1830s Blue Sky uniform Soldier?
1: I was in the Persian Gulf in 1991. I remember that desert storm, and I remember I used to fly off of aircraft carriers at the time, and one night an airplane struck the ramp of the ship the pilot ejected, and I could see that happening. And what ended up happening there was the flight deck is fouled. And so we diverted to Dahran Saudi Arabia, and that's where I had my first meal ready to eat, MRE. And I was impressed, compared favorably, with the food on the boat. I think the Army does well. Since that time, I'd been in the desert in Qatar and in Saudi Arabia and in Egypt. And I've had more than my fair share of MREs living in tents and whatnot. And I'm impressed with the progress of Army Chow over time, whether it's in a dining facility or out of a
0: green plastic bag. Stephen, what are your plans to expand to other wars?
1: Uh, we'll see where it goes. I've envisioned a timeline of the food from even before Seminole Wars to maybe what Revolutionary War soldiers might have eaten, how they ate, prepared their food through War of 1812 and then Seminole War period, even the Army rations in World War One, World War Two, Korea, Vietnam. As a kid, I remember some of these green cans laying around and we'd get our John Wayne's out and open up the container and smell it, see what was going on in there. So I could see in a different event, a progression of what the folks ate at different times. That's really not my primary goal though with the reenacting. I'm more interested in shooting the guns and, and reenacting the battle and telling the story but my wife is part of this, too. An army travels on its stomach, according to you know Napoleon, I guess. And I know what it's like to, to go a little hungry. So <laughs> the food is necessary and you can't win a war without it being in good condition and in the right quantities.
0: So you're a retired field grade officer in the United States Navy. How do you find yourself today presenting as a U.S. Army private of the 1830s?
1: It is probably not the beaten path. I didn't aspire to be an Army private. I was a commissioned officer for 25 years. I was a history major in college. I was always impressed by the presentations of living history at places like Williamsburg and Yorktown and Jamestown and Valley Forge, St. Augustine, you know, Fort Marion there, Castillo de San Marcos and places like that just a few years ago i was talking to ranger bill gruber and george webb before him about hey you know this looks kind of interesting i'd like to participate bill gruber connected me with jesse marshall and he was tireless and unselfish as all get out and helping me set up for this stuff the guy who flew in the navy for a long time that it seems like a weird fit but i also taught this kind of stuff for about 10 years I got an appreciation from reading a lot of Army doctrine about Army doctrinal
0: processes, their TTPs. TTPs, tactics, techniques, and procedures. Then terrain matters, some of the logistics concerns, and
1: a lot of Army background on that. So I feel like a hybrid now. I'm more of what you would call a joint officer. I'm multi-service, I'm Navy, I'm Army, I'm Marine, I'm Coast Guard even. I feel able to converse that language across the services. I am more of a joint
0: officer now than a naval officer, based on what my career went like. Who is your wife, Paulette, presenting as? She is presenting as Margaret Bates. That's
1: one of her ancestors. She has many ancestors to choose from. Being a seventh-generation Floridian, with several here when Florida became a U.S. territory. Margaret Bates was Fleming Bates' wife. Uh, Fleming Bates was a primitive Baptist preacher who traveled in southern Georgia and northern Florida, planting Baptist churches as early as 1821. Her Bates line goes all the way from then to her. She has other lines that were here early on, the Ellises and probably the Widdens, the and Hayman's. There's lots of lines of pioneers, but the one that is closest to this time period,
0: it would be Margaret Bates. What special talents does Paulette bring to creating the impression of a lady of the 1830s?
1: Paulette is very creative. She's an excellent homemaker. She has loved to sew. She's sewing since she was probably five or six years old with her grandmother. We have a couple of treadle singers here. So she really loves to sew and she likes to make clothes. When I expressed an interest in this uh, and, you know, where do you get the the uniform from? She was courageous enough and had the experience sewing that she could construct a uniform for me and then she has patterns of clothing from the period she's acquired through different places online and so she sews that stuff so the sewing machine is going really very often here she's not afraid to try different recipes that sort of thing she's a very creative person she paints she wouldn't say she's an artist she would say she's more of a crafter type person she sees something and says i think i can make that and that's what she does
0: why is it important that spectators see both of you presenting at different historical events?
1: I think at the event at Dade, the the crowd probably appreciates seeing more people than less. I I'm guessing in you know, a in a man and a woman. It's like okay, now you can both genders can come up there and communicate with the people. That and it adds a dimension. I don't know that one is more effective than the other, but we could tag team our stories, complimentary stories, when we were talking to the people that came up to look at the display. So I think it worked out pretty well. I enjoyed, I enjoyed it.
0: And in fact, one would see women in various occupations in that period with the troops.
1: That is true. There weren't women on the march, but there were women at Fort Brooks and I don't know about Fort King, and my research doesn't I don't have enough information on that. But in the army, there were washerwomen. A unit might be a unit of a certain size might be assigned several washerwomen to take care of the clothes because the soldiers weren't necessarily doing their own laundry. And the women also might help in food preparation perhaps. I'm not sure of the extent of that. I know that they would sew things or put things together like ammunition cartridges at times, that sort of thing. So there were women at the fort, and many times they were soldiers' wives, their officers' wives. In fact, Captain Gardner's wife was there at Fort Brooke, and she was sick. He made sure she got on a boat. I drink the Key West to get in you know, some medical care, and that's why Dave took over the march. When Major Dade was on the march and Gardner's wife was taken care of, Gardner made it back out to the column to join the march to his demise. There were women there at the time. I don't know if modern day presentations of women are as accurate because most of the women are dressed up pretty nice when you see pictures of them. Things are probably a little rougher in the territory of Florida at the time. She and I had discussions about corsets. Would a woman have worn a corset or not? course, corset it had several functions, and one of them was like a back brace. So when you see someone in a place like Home Depot with a back brace on, it's in boxes, well, that's a, a corset after a fashion. So, yes, women were there, and it does probably add a, a more depth to the, uh, to the context of what was happening at the time.
0: Stephen, you have professional ties to the park. Please tell us about the staff rides that you ran. What were they all about, and what was their purpose in using the Dade battlefield? As
1: you mentioned before, I was a naval flight officer. I was in the Navy for 25 years, flew off of aircraft carriers in the Persian Gulf for most of my career, you know, trained for the rest of the Ruskies, but uh, ended up fighting in the Persian Gulf. I went to Naval War College. After that, I went to U.S. Central Command at MacDill and worked in the current air branch from about 2001 to 2005. So I got there right after 9-11. Uh, during my time there, I was a Joint Operations Center Team Chief and the chief of Ops for much of my time there. So really keeping an eye on the current fight, things like Fallujah and that sort of thing. After uh, CENTCOM, I was assigned to the USS Theodore Roosevelt, which is an aircraft carrier, as strike operations officer, and then the Joint Forces Staff College in Norfolk, Virginia, for shore duty. So the Joint Forces Staff College is really where I get into this, besides my Navy war college uh, education. Uh, At JFSC, I taught strategic and operational planning to officers from all of the services in order to prepare them for joint duty at the Pentagon, combatant commands, and other staffs. A a combatant command is a command like U.S. Central Command or U.S. Special Operations Command, a four-star command. Joint and it's a combatant command. So these guys are the warfighters in specific regions of the world. After I retired from active duty, I was fortunate to be hired to continue to teach at JFSC. was a lead course developer and instructor in a congressionally mandated pilot program to take the course in Norfolk out to the combatant commands. Before this, students came in from all over the world to go to the class, and then this pilot program was to try to push it out so that they could be taught where they were. I taught in a three-person teaching team to CENTCOM and SOCOM officers at Joint Special Operations University at McDill. And after that three-year experiment, the course was assessed, approved, and now is in place at all the combatant commands and the National Capital Region on a rotating basis. So that gets me down to Tampa. But in Norfolk, part of the curriculum included a staff ride to Yorktown, the Yorktown battlefield where George Washington and the French forced Cornwallis to surrender leading to our independence. The staff ride was an essential part of the course. And as the course in Tampa evolved, I developed a staff ride for the classes here. When it looked like we were coming down here, I talked with others of my colleagues, where can we do a staff ride down there? Well, in this relatively quiet period in Army history, this thing called the Seminole War, the Second Seminole War happens. And, you know, it was the second one. Well, I didn't even know there was a first war. And then I found out later there was a third Seminole War. Break these things down into time periods. To the Florida Indians, it's all just one big conflict. It's like Afghanistan over the last 40 years. So I started to work on that. I met people at Dade Battlefield because I found out about the battle there and what it led to. And grew to know uh, people like Ranger George Webb and Bill Gruber, Stephen Rank and John Griffin, Steve Kramer, Kenny Hawkwood and others. They provided living history and offered their services to do impressions of soldiers and Seminoles and others during that period to support the staff rides. We also take it to the Tampa Bay History Center for some of those displays, and we also taught some classes out there to the students. That's how we get there. It just happened that in Florida during that time period, a great opportunity to do a staff ride about an hour north of Tampa emerged, and we took advantage of it.
0: How did you make the dormant battlefield come alive for your students as you walked the terrain? Well, talking
1: to... People like George Webb and Stephen Rank, the Seminole Wars Foundation, would pony up some fellows to do the interpretations. So as part of the staff ride after the academics, we would meet at the, the visitor center and, and, and we'd walk portions of the military trail, such as it is, come across the wood breastworks and the memorials and things like that. But along the way, we would stop and we would have discussions about what happened and what we could learn from it. We would encounter a a reenactor, for instance, Private Patty, played by Stephen Rink is presenting. And he would discuss, hey, here's what's going on at the time. And actually, as if he was Private Patty in the field. And so the students would pick up a bunch from that. When we had concluded that, we'd walk down the military trail a little further. And I remember the first time we did this. We came up to this little slough, small stream, and John Griffin, who was a black seminal, was there dressed out. He looked at me, and he had a very stern expression on his face, and he said, you know, technically, we never signed a peace treaty. And just the way he said it was kind of ominous and menacing. And I thought, oh, okay, we'll see what happens. We crossed the little bridge over the slough, and we got into some more pines and palmettos, and then shots rang out. And it was Seminoles hidden in the Palmetto. You couldn't see them, but I'll just hear the dots. I had guys in my class who had just come back from Afghanistan and Iraq, and so they are like, not expecting musketry there. That really added some depth to the, <laughs> to the presentations. We also made sure that later on I'd tell guys, hey, there may be some gunplay out here, so just be alert. We're trying to find these people. And George Webb did a great presentation on a trapper trader. So um, these guys added a depth of discussion, that we would not have gotten out
0: of a a black-and-white textbook page. How was your staff ride received by students?
1: In general, I can't think of any real negative comments. It's been positive. Students, I don't care who you are, probably would rather be in class outside than in a school building, so the opportunity to get outside. And then when you have the opportunity to walk ground that soldiers and Seminoles, in this case, fought and died over, it's important when you see where the best works is that's the site of where the mass graves were impressive so these guys who have been in combat, they see, they understand this, and they can associate what had happened even that far back. Florida was not a paradise <laughs> 150 years ago. They value it. And I've had feedback even since some of my students have gone through that. They said, hey, we really enjoyed this part. I've spoken to Marson and I had a couple of students for at Marscent a few years ago, and they invited me to speak there in front of their
0: staff. What's the takeaway they have from the staff right?
1: They see that history rhyme, the same issues, whether it's joint warfighting functions or some of the operational design aspects, so they still work. you got to be able to command and control. you got to get valid intelligence. you got to be able to move and maneuver and apply fire. So they get similar things that they've probably experienced, but in a different time frame, and they see how transferable some of these lessons are. They can analyze decisions that leaders take. Something happened here. It turned out bad. Why was that? Why do we think that happened? Why did the leader decide to do something which, to him at the time, seemed probably like a good idea. Major Dade, when he marched out, didn't intend to have his whole unit wiped out. But he took decisions that possibly led to that result. We will never know if a different decision would have changed the outcome, but it gives us an opportunity to apply critical thinking to historical events.
0: Tell us about your ancestor, David Fitzgerald. He's a regular soldier during the First Summoner War, and he participated in the battle at Fowl Town.
1: David Fitzgerald, what I can tell, at least a third generation American from Georgia. I've seen historical records that mention his father and his grandfather. And for some reason, in September of 1814, he signed up to join the regular army. He was up in Sackets Harbor, which is up in uh, New York. It's near the Great Lakes. I don't know that he participated in any fights up there. The British were fighting up there as well from Canada. But then in 1817, he was sent down to Florida. In the record, it mentions he participated in Fowl Town, and he was also at Fort Gadsden. And... Uh, so you have to go to what those events were like to say, yeah, well, this is probably his participation. At Fowl Town, there was a chief called Neemafla who did not agree that the Treaty of Fort Jackson was valid. Basically, when Andrew Jackson won a decisive battle, he compelled the Indians there to sign a treaty which relinquished many, many square miles of land, a lot of what is uh, Georgia, Alabama, that sort of thing. So this chief said, I wasn't part of that, and I'm not honoring it. And if you come across the Flint River fights on, leadership at the fort up there, there was a fort established there that needed to be resupplied, resupplying the fort in the wilderness like that over land was going to be too hard. So the decision was made, well, we'll push supplies up the Apalachicola River, ultimately up to Fort Scott. There was some bit of conflict there. There's a, a fight at a place called Prospect Bluffs, known as Negro Fort. Up at Fort Scott, Colonel Twiggs was sent to go get me and Aswa, and they tried to get him, bring him in, and they had resisted. This is in, I believe, November of 1817. And then a few days later, a larger U.S. force was sent out and they destroyed the the village. There was still conflict happening up there over a fort that was in American territory, but Indian thief there not recognized the treaty. That was a problem, and that led to part of the later push for Andrew Jackson to come down and really invade a country, territory related to Spain, in pursuit of these Indians. So that started the First Seminole War, or thereabouts.
0: Your wife, Paulette, Stephen, is a seventh-generation Floridian. Her ancestor, Fleming Bates, was a primitive Baptist preacher. Primitive Baptist churches still exist, and there's at least one that holds services in the Tampa Bay area to this day. And one in Bushnell, Florida, which is where the Seminole Wars Foundation has its homestead. Tell us about Fleming Bates and his family's military service in the Seminole Wars.
1: Paulette's ancestry goes back to pre-territorial time in southern Georgia, and it probably even into when Spain was still in control there. The folks in Georgia were itching to get across the border into Florida, and Hunting Bates was a Baptist preacher. He would sow these churches. He would plant churches. In fact, about in 2021, early 2022, we went into southern Georgia to celebrate the 200th anniversary of the founding of Pigeon Creek Church, just above the St. Mary's River in uh, southern Georgia. So that's what he was doing. And he had a couple of sons. Uh, One of his sons was James Bates. Fleming Bates and James Bates served throughout the Second Seminole War as militia. They were in the Noonan'sville area, Alachua County at the time. We can see through the years, they might be with the same unit or they might have moved on to a different unit, but they were called up as required and served and then went back home. It was during the Second Seminole War. In the Third Seminole War, by that time, funding had passed, and it was James and his son, John. James was a bit old. I think he lied on one of his enlistments to serve in the same unit as his son. He worked as a farrier, horse guy. John worked as a courier, and John had misfortune. He was acting as a courier, and apparently he had a mishap crossing the bridge on his horse, and one of his legs was severely lacerated, and he ended up having it amputated he lived a long time and long enough that he was known as Pegleg, so John Pegleg Bates, and his wife was Elizabeth, and they're buried, I think, at Oak Hill in Arcadia. So that happened in 1855, and so this was only a few years before the Civil War, and then when the Civil War started and Florida seceded, one of his younger brothers ended up fighting for the Confederates, so he had a brother versus brother kind of thing going on there, and there was a heavy Union sentiment in some places in Florida, and John Peg Leg Bates worked with the Union guys and doing horse things, but he lost some of his property to the Confederates down there in Manatee County at the time, Fort Myers area. That's their participation in those three wars, Fleming and James in the Second Seminole War, and then James and John in the Third Seminole War. Now, usually in the same units, James Bates was also a sheriff in Hernando County, and he was a postmaster up there back when it was called Benton County. And he was there as a precinct guy when Florida became a state in 1845. It's interesting to dig in these and to go into different cemeteries and find the grave markings and and that sort of thing. That's what we do.
0: How do you know this information about your ancestors? Do you have some artifacts or letters or things of that nature? For Paulette, one of
1: the artifacts that's been passed on isn't related with directly, but it's genealogically and historical artifact related. She has a letter from one of her ancestors named Ronk, who was a flag bearer for Georgia unit in the Civil War. So you have a letter from the time period. That's probably the only direct piece of paper that we have from those lines. But then you have Ancestry.com and these other websites that have access to census records, to land records, and military service records, or the Bates line. The Haman line is another line that is heavy in her family, and they were a line of preachers. So the church records from the time, probated wills, that sort of thing. So those are the, the historical records that we've been able to find and then you might find a book. Counties used to write county histories, and then names may be in. Really, a lot of that sleuthing thing is enabled by the Internet. Without that, we wouldn't know a lot of what we do. All we'd have is maybe a random grave or a strange name in a family plot and have to guess about it.
0: How does knowledge of your ancestor's service in the Seminole Wars inform your living history interpretation today? Interesting to try to
1: walk in someone's shoes for a bit. Try to start a fire without matches. Have two meals a day and leftovers as breakfast for the next morning. There was no air conditioning at the time in Florida. There are mosquitoes. There's all kinds of beasts. Florida wasn't a paradise at the time. It was a swamp. There was sawgrass. And if you're a farmer fresh from the old country... You get off the boat in New York and someone's saying, hey, how would you like to have three meals and a hot cot to sleep in? And you get paid 6 or $7 a month. And they say, oh, that sounds great. And they get on the boat and they learn to march on the way. And then they're in Florida. They went from a place that might be 45 degrees north latitude to a place that's 26, 28 degrees north latitude. And it is miserable. More people die of disease-related complications than combat. This is normal in the history of warfare, but it's applied in Florida as well. So far,
0: what are your impressions of the reenacting community?
1: They're all nice. They're excited or passionate about what they know and what they're trying to do. They're all striving for some level of authenticity, given their finances or their time or their motivation to achieve that. In general, it's pretty good. Some folks will be critical about perceived mistakes in dress, uniform, or whatever um, we're all trying to seek what Jesse Marshall calls verisimilitude. We're doing the best we can to be as accurate as we can, given those limitations, and we'll, and we'll do the best we can until we can do better. In general, the public appreciates people putting the effort out to educate and motivate the knowledge about this period of history. If there's one unifying thing, it's that it's that people want to spread the news about what things were like in the past. And they value the way things were done in the past. And they don't want to lose those talents because it helps explain why we are the way we are now.
0: Listeners to this podcast know the name, Jesse Marshall. Jesse Marshall was instrumental to our series, Marshall Matters of the Seminole Wars. How helpful has Jesse Marshall been for you as an entry-level living history interpreter?
1: Jesse Marshall has been my number one guy for answering questions like that. He had done an internship at the Smithsonian. So whenever we have a question about something, we're asking him. He's got those things closer to his fingertips than we do. We might not even know where to look. Using Jesse to get through the articles has been great. He is reluctant to make up history. And so he will say, well, this is what we know, or at least this is what we have an example of. But we can't necessarily make a judgment about everything based on this one example. For example, if there's a shirt in a museum, then it's the only shirt out there. You may or may not be wrong to conclude, well, all the shirts were made exactly this way because they weren't. You didn't have a factory system of shirt-making where you had robots putting shirts together. It was people doing it, women with good eyesight or bad eyesight or big fingers or small fingers. They're putting these things together, so there's variation among articles of clothing, for example, People are doing the best they can with what they know, and then they can deduce what they don't know to fill in the gaps. And that's where some of the more questionable history is. You can't necessarily say this is how it was because you really don't know. You're not back there. But here's an example of one. There were probably others like it. Jesse Marshall has been great about providing help with that and literally to how cuffs are made or not lacing, the right color of lacing, the buttons, everything, the style of wool, the shoe wear, the leather fatigue covers, the women's dress at the time. He has been a goldmine for that information. So we would not be as close to being accurate as we are now if it wasn't for him. So we appreciate that.
0: What do you want the public or listeners to take away from your exhibiting at Living History events?
1: what we would like them to take away is a little bit of our enthusiasm for the period of time that we're presenting. When people see living historians or reenact, I think part of them says, oh, those people are a little kooky. Why are they dressed up in funny clothes and shooting black powder or footlocks? Whoever's doing it, the, the impression and communicate that enthusiasm to the audience, and that's infectious. We talked to several people at the event who seemed energized by what we said. A lot of ahas moments and didn't know that, and that sort of thing. So I think passing the word, really, here's some bit of Florida history. We feel it's important enough that it ought to be shared, and hopefully they catch some of our enthusiasm for it, and if they tell their friends, well, the history won't disappear, and it'll continue to go. Dade's battle was 1835. We're talking almost 200 years, and we're still at a state park reenacting soldiers from that period. So I think that's a win, given how long ago it was. Passing the word, motivating future generations to learn about it, and not forget it because we may make the same mistake if we don't understand what happened in the past.
0: Stephen Dennis, we're out of time. Thanks for joining us for the Seminole Wars Authority.
1: Well, thank you for allowing me the opportunity to join you.
0: This podcast is copyright 2022, the Seminole Wars Foundation, all rights reserved. Find us on the web at seminalwars.podbean.com or seminalwars.us. Front and back bumper music courtesy of the U.S. Navy Band.